0: I'm a, I'm a fan of Sunday morning, Sunday service. I'll preach to you all day long about how Sunday service is not church. Ian was hinting at this, talking about this a little bit, this thing that we we're a part of. This isn't the church. We're the church. But I love what happens here, see, because we get these magical moments like just now where we proclaim you are good. And for most of us, for, let me say, for many of us, that's the reality. We're feeling good, and we're feeling the goodness of God. You might not know it, but there's some of us in that room who have a real hard time singing that. What happens when we gather together is all sorts of stories come together and kind of sit as a family. And I love that if you can't sing that, you have brothers and sisters around you who can sing it for you. If you can't sing that, you have brothers and sisters around you who can carry you and believe it for you even if you can't right now, and there's, you just can't get that in other places, so I'm happy to be here with you, I'm excited, let's pray, Um, Holy Spirit, you've been speaking, you've been talking, you've been drawing us in, would you just continue to do that now? Would you use this story to draw us into the life that you've created us for? That's a lot to say right there, but you are God, and I trust that you can and just love to do that. So it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Last week, we dove into this story. It's a story, really, but we call it the Book of Ruth. The Book of Ruth is this tiny little 85-verse story in the Old Testament that we forget about oftentimes. Matter of fact, scholars, biblical scholars, they call the book of Ruth one of the forgotten books of the Old Testament. Now, which is ironic because most evangelicals just forget that there's an Old Testament altogether, don't we? We love dwelling in the land of Jesus, but that craziness of this ancient Israelites, no thanks. But I'm excited that we've spent pretty much half this past year in the Old Testament, whether it's in the book of Genesis or Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets and now in the book of Ruth. We get to open up the story, but see what happens a lot of times in the church, if you're a churchy person with a churchy background, what happens is we take this book and we treat it pretty flippantly, don't we? If you grew up in the church and maybe you went through catechism or maybe for you non-denoms, it's youth group, right? We grew up hearing about these stories, and, and we kind of treat it like, oh, thank you, Lord, for this direct word just for me and my language, right? We, 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 we kind of treat this a little bit flippantly, but do you realize that this book of Ruth, this story of Ruth, is a story that has its origins somewhere around 3,000 years ago. The story that we're diving into, I I hope you, as I'm talking now and talking about the origins of the book of Ruth, you feel the privilege it is to be this people of faith, thinking about a story that people have thought about for millennia. The book of Ruth, biblical scholars don't know whether it was written pre-exile or post-exile. Now we're getting really Bible geeky. If, you, if you're an Old Testament fan, you know what I'm talking about. The Israelites went into exile, and as a product of, their ex- of the exile, a lot of the scriptures were written down. It's when, when the written word and reading literacy became a thing, it burst into the world. And all these scriptures were written down. But even before it was written down, whether it was pre- or post-exile, we don't know. But even before it was written down, it was told orally, the scriptures. Now imagine that, this story that we're about to open up, moms and dads, 3,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago, in the ancient Near East, in the Middle East, imagine this with me. You're in a tent with nothing resembling power or modernity, and it's lit by candles and oil lamps, and a mom or a dad would call their kids to come around, and they tell the story of Naomi and Ruth. Can you picture it? And we today get to open this ancient, sacred story up. I love that I get to stand in this rich heritage, that this is our history. And when, So when moms and dads would, either in their tent at night or maybe when they're walking on their way to get water in the desert or in the, in the, in, 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 in the wilderness, wherever they were, and they would be telling their kids this story, they would use this word, there was this word that, they would, that, that that kind of defined the story of Ruth, and it was this rich, beautiful, profound word. And it's a word that actually doesn't have, there's, it's a, not a translatable word into English. Scholars have thought for years now how to translate this one Hebrew word that kind of embodies this story and, and, and brings it to life, but they can't do it. There's no English word to, to correctly define this Hebrew word. The word is chesed. You've got to kind of clear your throat as you're saying it, but can I hear you say chesed? Good job, chesed. The word chesed, we have to take a number of English words to, def- to, to, to bring understanding to what this word chesed means, and it basically means, here's our best stab at it, unfailing, selfless, loyalty, kindness, and agape love. This word chesed is more of a concept to us than it's a word, because you got to attach all sorts of English words to it to understand what it's getting at. It's this Unfailing, loyal love, and kindness that will never stop. Hebrew scholars, when they when they when they talk about the word chesed, they, they say that chesed is this, um, it's actually defining what humanity was created to live in. Hebrew scholars will say this word chesed is, 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 is describing this. Imago day, right? This image of God. If you read Genesis 1, 26, 27, right, right around there, you'll find that God created men and women in his own image, in the image of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This divine relationship full of love and generosity in celebration in all that beauty, all that flow of life, we were created in the image of it, and we were created to embody it. Chesed. It's what we're created for, and it takes central place in the story. We we read over it last week when we read over the first 13 verses of Ruth 1. It's in Ruth 1:8. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, "Go back, each of you, to your mothers. Go back, each of you, to your mother's home." Which was really interesting because they would never say in the ancient world, "To your mother's home." They'd always say, "To your father's home." It's kind of a progressive book we find here. And may the Lord show you kindness. Hesed, you, as you have shown Hesed to your dead husbands and, me, to, and to me. Now, the word kindness is just scratching at the surface. It doesn't do it. It's this rich, beautiful, profound thing that God's giving His people. This is how I love you, and this is how I'm calling you to live in Hesed. You won't find the word chesed defined in the, in the book of Ruth or anywhere in the scriptures, but what we will find is this idea, this concept, this way of living called chesed. We'll see it demonstrated in some richness and beauty this morning in our text. Last week we started in the book of Ruth and we started and we dropped in and we found that the book of Ruth really isn't about the woman named Ruth herself, it's about her mother-in-law named Naomi. It's about Basically, the book of Ruth is about this cranky, bitter, angry old lady who no one wants to be around. You know someone like that? <laughs> Maybe you are that. I'm kind of that sometimes, especially when the Packers lose. Um, the book of Ruth Drops in and we hear about Naomi, this woman. And Naomi, pre-Book of Ruth, before this story, she's got everything a woman could want. Everything an ancient Near Eastern Israelite woman can want. See, she's married to a guy from a, who comes from a good family. We know that Elimelech, her husband, comes from a good family line. So that's a huge, great starting point in the story of Naomi. She's married to a good man a, a, from a good family. And then she's got two sons good news for Naomi. Now, for some of us, we'd be like, uh, you said she had a great life and was living kind of the ideal world. Did, she, did her and her husband have this great romantic relationship? How was their marriage? And did they travel a lot? Did they, did, was, was their tent full of the greatest interior designs? See, an ancient woman would have been like, what are you talking about? See, in the ancient world, for a woman, her whole world rested on whether or not she was married to a good to a decent man from a good family. That, that provided for you, gave you protection. It, it, it did all the things that you needed. And then your identity lied in how many kids you can have, and if in particular if you could have sons. This is not the Bible winking and nodding at patriarchy. It's just Telling the the ways of the ancient world. It's not just God's people who did this. It's all of the world at that point. But your identity was tied to how many sons you can have. And she had two of them. Naomi's got a good life. But we find in Ruth 1, a famine happens. And we easily just say a famine happens, but that means, as we saw last week, catastrophe happens to this family and their people. Famine means they probably lost family members. Famine means they probably had to go hungry and had to figure out how are, how are we going to provide for both of our sons? How are we going to feed them? So they actually moved and they ran, they ran from their country and settled in another country, which made them what? Refugees. We hop into this story... And it's this dark story of, of a family who become refugees or immigrants and lose their national identity and are trying to figure out how to live in this foreign land. And then the story gets darker. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, he dies. Now this is extra, this is a little bit ironic because Elimelech, the name in Hebrew means my God is king. This man who's named, My God is King, dies in a foreign country as a refugee, leaving his family without him. My God is King. Really? So the story gets darker. Naomi goes from refugee to refugee who's now a widow, but the story is not over. It's not, it's, it's, everything's still okay because she has the two sons to provide for her. In this culture, a woman couldn't provide for herself. She needed the men around her, and so their sons were supposed to provide for her and protect her. It was okay, then as you walk out in Ruth 1, you find that there, her two sons, Malon and Kilion, they marry a couple of Moabite women. And the Bible's kind of indifferent about it. It doesn't say, the story doesn't say they shouldn't have done it, they shouldn't have married these foreign wives, or they, great, they did. It just says they did. But then you get this little nugget, this little tidbit, that you got to look beneath the surface. It says they lived there for 10 years. And the profound thing is more of what it doesn't Say because see, any ancient writing would say they lived there for 10 years and here's all the children that they had, but it doesn't say that at all. What we find is that when, when in, in Genesis, I think it's in Genesis 16, when the scripture is talking about Abraham and, Abraham and Sarah. They went 10 years trying to have a baby, and then they gave up and tried, to ha- tried other ways to have a baby. What we find is that a couple basically had 10 years. A woman had 10 years to bear children, and when they couldn't bear children after 10 years, they were called barren. They were called barren and were seen as basically now useless. Good for nothing. If you have tried to have babies and have seen, dealt with month after month after month of disappointment, you know the pain that is in those vacant words. If you have been unable to have children, especially as a woman, because so much of your identity is tied to that, you know the pain and the loss and the longing in those words. So this is a dark story they come, it's a family, a good family who become refugees, and then the father dies, and Naomi becomes a widow, and then the bottom drops out. Her sons die. Both of her sons die, and she's got no one left to protect her, no one left to provide for her. She's on her own rejected. Now, it's hard for us to understand the plight of widows, because we're in a first world country where that just doesn't happen. There's all sorts of safety nets for people. The, uh, around the world, this still, this, this still happens. There's a city in India called Vrindavan. Vrindavan is one of the holy Hindu holy cities in India. And Vrindavan is known as the city of widows, see? Because widows, when, when, a woman's, when an Indian woman's husband died, they flock to Vrindavan, and they basically lose the rest of their lives these widows of vrindavan are, are are their future is destined to be just they have these begging pots they wander around and they have these little begging pots and they just chant and beg for li- any scrap that they can get in indian culture and in Hi- hindu culture a, a woman's value is tied to her husband and when your husband dies so does your value and your worth this is today, right now. There used to be this practice, it's outlawed now, but it was for centuries, it was called this Hindu practice of sati. And in this practice of sati, uh, when, a, when a woman's husband died, there would be a funeral, and instead of burying him, burying the husband, they would burn his body alive, which I think is kind of cool. Or not bury him alive, bury him, bur- just bury his body. <laughs> burying the body, it's kind of brave-hearty, right? little Lord of the Rings. But what happened, here's the really ugly part. With Sati, it said that if, a, if the widow wanted to, she could actually throw her body on her husband's burning body to kill herself because, see, her worth was burning up with her husband. And those who didn't do that were left to die a Long, miserable life. This is one woman in an interview said, one of these widows of Vrindavan, she said this, when we were young, we never imagined this would be our end. I'm full of shame when I beg. I'm from a good family, but it's the same with all the widows. Our usefulness is past. We are all rejects. We are all rejects, these widows. This is today, but this is Naomi's reality that we read about. Rejected. Discarded. No longer provided for. No no longer worried about. And we saw within this reality is when she talks to her daughters-in-law and she says, hey, you need to get out of here. I might be cursed. It feels like God's hand is turned against me, but there's no future for me for you with me. My future is done. I've hit the dead end in life. I'm a reject now. My life is destined. My my future is going to be begging on the streets. My future is going to be dying a slow, painful death. Go, run from me. Go back to your mothers and your fathers. You might find protection there. You might even find a new husband, but don't stay with me. Now, there's a little bit of self-loathing and self-pity in there, but there's a lot of compassion because Naomi was right. There's no future for these ladies with her. And so let's pick up. Let's, let's just review a little bit what I just said. We'll pick up in Ruth 1.11. It says this, Naomi, after all this had happened, Naomi turned to her daughters-in-law and she said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husband? What she was saying was in, in, in Israelite law, God commanded that if a, if a woman's husband died, his brother was supposed to take in his widow because if he didn't, she would be as good as dead, unprotected, unprovided for. But she said, I don't have any more sons, and I'm not going to. Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband, and even if there was still hope for me to have a husband, even if I had a husband tonight that gave birth to sons, would you want to wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Do you feel the pain and the desperation and the darkness in those words? Are you flashing back that we're reading the story that was told in tense and along the way 3,000 years ago in the ancient Near East? At this, is, it says they wept aloud again. There's just awful emotion. Then Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, she kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. See what? But the scripture is is not saying Orpah was an evil woman who was selfish. Orpah, this daughter-in-law, she was only thinking about herself. The scripture doesn't give any grief at all to Orpah. As a matter of fact, Orpah, this one daughter-in-law, she's doing what common sense tells a person to do. If you stay with this woman, you have no future. If you stay with this woman, you're walking into a dead end just like her. Go and have a future and a life just makes a lot of sense. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, she's trying one last ditch to persuade her. Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go with her. Because if you come with me, you're going to become an immigrant. If you come with me, everybody in my town is going to look down on you. If you come with me, you're going to be a barren widow who's tied herself to a childless widow. And there is no future in that. But Ruth replied, Naomi, please don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Listen to these words. Don't urge me to, turn, to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. I don't care where it is. I don't care if it's on the street or in a great house. I'm going to make my home with you. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. What she's actually doing is covenanting, Ruth is covenanting to herself to Naomi, even past death. Maybe some of us would say, well, maybe Naomi won't last very long. And she can, Ruth can carry on. Ruth is actually saying, no, I'm going to actually stay with you and your people. Even after you die, I'm going to make that my people and my home, no matter what happens. And I'm going to be buried right next to you, Ruth, because I'm your family. Whew. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. This is an ancient people's way of swearing. It would be like they were demonstrating, like cutting off their head. There was a big plunge through the... May the Lord deal with me ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. They went up around the Red Sea and down through Israel, landed in Bethlehem, their home. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? They caused a huge fuss. Don't call me Naomi, she said, for Naomi means pleasant. My world and my reality is no longer pleasant. I'm changing my name. See, in the ancient world, a meaning of a person's name spoke to their character and what their reality was. She said, I'm changing my name. No longer am I pleasant. Call me Mara, because that means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her immigrant daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. That's a transition in the story but we won't go there till next week. There's three things, three things in this little narrative we just read that just kind of confronted me as I was studying this. And it spoke to me in different ways, three three ways this spoke to me, so I'm just going to share them with you. The first thing is what we find in this this narrative here. We, We see Christianity, we modern Western Christians, particularly evangelicals, but really all over the church in America, we see Christianity as this If I believe in God and I do all the things, I'm going to have life, right? It's called the gospel. We see the gospel played out in these rich, beautiful ways in Jesus. But what I find here in, in Ruth's words and her actions, her, this chesed that she, that she gives and embodies and lives in, is I see the gospel playing out right here in this story. And the crazy thing is, is I think this might be, this just might be the clearest picture of the gospel we have besides Jesus himself. This just might be the clearest picture of the gospel in all of the scriptures. And it's brought to us by this marginalized, forgotten nobody. But see, that's the kind of gospel that we have. When I read, as as you read these these words of Ruth, don't urge me to go away from you. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your home will be my home. Your people will be my people. I'm not going anywhere. I know you've got nothing in your future, and I know that you are hopeless, but I am with you. As you hear those words, I hope you hear the Father's heart for you. I hope you, 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 you see this is a story of the gospel, of, 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 of this heart of Ruth in Jesus. G- God coming to us and saying, I know you have no future. I know that the end of your life means really bad things for you. And I have everything. I don't need a thing. I don't need you. But I must have you. And in the gospel, we see in the incarnation, God, this God who leaves everything behind to come and be with us. And he, he subjects himself to, to, to living as a human being and, and, and experiencing brokenness around him and, and ugliness and longing and, and desperation, all these things, because he has to be with us. He covenants himself to us and says, where you go, I will go. And I've talked to some of you this week, after last week, last week we talked a lot about suffering and the garbage of life just happening. And I've talked to some of you who are in just right there in that pit, and you don't know what to do. And sometimes it's easy, and I've, I've talked to some of you who said, it feels like I'm here because of God. feels like maybe I deserve this feels like maybe this is God's kind of way of teaching me something. This is God's discipline. This is God's judgment. And what we find, and, and some of us have even said, I, okay, I, I can't, I want to isolate myself from that God. But what we find is that God says, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not actually nowhere to be found. I'm going to come to you right in your pain, right in your garbage, right in your, right in your junk, and you won't, you can't get rid of me. You can't get rid of me, see, because I am embodying this chesed, this unconditional agape love that is that that breaks at nothing. I love, all summer I've been studying this book of Ruth, and I love, I've been captivated by the fact that I have a God, you have, we have a God who tells his story, who tells the gospel, the most important story in the history of mankind, through the marginalized. The book of Ruth tells me if you want to know what God is really like, don't go to megachurches or places like this maybe even. Go look at the marginalized, the forgotten. Go look at the ones that we push and cast aside. And you're going to find the beautiful life of God in them if you're looking for it. So the first thing about this, about this section is we find it, the gospel right in it. The second thing is, is an invitation. Second thing is an invitation. We have been invited into life, but as Christians, I feel like that's where we stop. As, as modern-day Western Christians, we stop at this, you've been invited into life. Yes, tell me what to say, and I'll say it. Tell me what to pray, and I'll pray it. Praise God, I'm saved forever. We just celebrated baptism last week. A handful of you got baptized. It was beautiful and powerful. I loved it. But too many of us see baptism as a statistic that tells whether or not our church is successful and how many conversions we've got, and we stop there. But see, baptism, saying yes to the gospel, saying yes to life, is just the beginning. See, because you're you're not just invited into new life, you're invited into a new way of life. And what we find in the book of Ruth is Ruth, see what's what's crazy, did you see that where she said, your God will be my God? We don't even know if Ruth was a follower of Yahweh, of, of the God of the scriptures, of the one true God. We don't know it. She might have been through her influence with Naomi, maybe not. And Naomi was really casting a bad light on this God. But whether or not she was a follower of this God, she embodied this God in the way he lived in the most beautiful, profound way in all of the Old Testament. And see, that's what we're being invited into, not just to say yes to a new life, but to say yes to a new way of life. Do you know what the first Christians, right after Jesus ascended, do you know what the first Christians identified themselves as, what they called themselves? It wasn't Christians. There's a hint. The first Christians identified themselves as they called themselves followers of the way. Followers of the way. See because they understood that it's not just that this Jesus has given us life. It's that this Jesus has given us a new way to live, a new life, a new way of life and we are actually going to embody it and they turned the Roman empire upside down. They didn't know what to do with these Christians because they were, they were defying the social norms. of They were honoring slaves, and they were honoring women, and they were having them featured in their worship service. And the, the, the Roman Empire thought that they were trying to turn the, the society upside down. They were challenged by them because, see, they took Jesus at his word. They, believed, they didn't just believe in Jesus, they believed Jesus. They believed what he said, that this is actually a way of life that I'm calling you into. This is the way you've been made to live and to live in. To this is how you've been, this hesed that you've been created for. This is what I'm calling you into now. So friends, this preaches really well. Yeah, I'm called into a new way of life. How, I'm just going to ask you to reflect. Starting right now and then as you walk out these doors... How can you be that? What is God? Like right now with the people that you've got in your life, how does this new way of living, this new way of life play out in a way that you embody this chesed, this unconditional, unfailing agape love in the lives of the people around you? How does that play out? How is Jesus calling you to live as a not as just a Christian but a follower of the way? And here's the last thing. I said three things we've been through. We, saw the, we see the gospel in the book of Ruth and Ruth's heart, this chesed that she manifests. We see that we're called into living like Ruth, living in this new way of life, not just receiving life from God, but living in his way. And then we find we've, that the, we've titled this sermon series, Where is God? That's just what we've called it. Where is God? See, we called it that because Naomi is in a point of her life where she's saying, Where are you, God? Have you ever been in a point of life where you've asked that question? Are you in one right now? You're in good company because, see, the scriptures, our holy texts, they make room for questions like that, friends. And then the question is, is we're going to read through this. We're going to go through this several more weeks. And what we'll find is that God isn't around to be found explicitly. As Naomi says, my God has made me bitter. He's turned my life upside down, and it's awful. He's set himself against me. We don't see God going, hey, uh, Naomi, here I am, and I love you. I'm never leaving. Don't worry about it. It's me, Yahweh. You You don't find that in this book. We ask, where is God? But what we do find is the presence of God in this simple, simple woman named Ruth. That Naomi asks, where is God? And God says, right there in your daughter-in-law. That's where I am. I've, I, Ruth is embodying my life to you. You want to know where I am, God says? Look around you. Look around you in these beautiful people who just want to give themselves to you. We ask, where is God? Sometimes it's we're, we're expecting this big, grand, beautiful, powerful word from the Lord, and that can happen. It does, but more often than not, friends, you ask, where is God? And he's saying, I'm right there. I'm right there. I'm right there in that person that I'm loving you through. So will you receive it, and then, friends, will we actually be that people who bring the presence of God with us? When people are asking, where are you, God? We say, here he is. I'm not him, but I can love you like him because I'm called to. I'm called to a new way of living. And we get to be a walking apologetic for the living God. Are you with me? We get to be this walking testimony, a living and breathing track. Maybe you've been handed tracks say like you've won the lottery a million dollars you know we get to embody that life where is god he's all around you right now let's stand and pray friends father i want to live like like this woman i want to live a life that's not for myself I want to have the guts to do what Ruth did, but see, I'm so, I've been discipled by my culture, and I live a selfish life, and I see this world as to what it can do for me. So would you forgive me of that, and would you break that off? Would you break this selfish habit that we have in our culture off of all of us? And would you help us to live in the imago Dei, this, this this image that we've been created in that is selfless and loving and generous and celebratory celebrates all the beauty and the good around us. It's all the beauty and the good in the people around us that calls attention to it. Would you help us to be that people? Would you help us to be a kind of people that draws attention to your glory and your goodness in a world that needs a word of hope and life so desperately? Would you help us to embody your your, hesed, your beautiful, compassionate presence? Would you help us to be that? Would you help us to receive it? I love serving a God who shows up in the most unlikely people in the most unlikely places. Would you open my eyes? Would you open our eyes for your goodness and glory? that's all around us in all sorts of normal ways. Would you open our eyes, Holy Spirit? Would you help us to see as you do? And now we worship you. I want to worship you now. I want to respond and worship for this God who had this beautiful, delightful plan for planet Earth, for my life. I want to worship you. We're going to worship, friends, and I want to tell you, in case you want some prayer, if you want prayer for anything, there's a couple of people in the back. They've got these lanyards on, these badges Go back and receive prayer, and as that happens, let's worship together.